Or maybe just with almost, can we say, an over-familiarity with the way that we kind of do things in Presbyterian churches. Sometimes what happens is that we just click on the cruise control when we get to the Lord's table and when we get to the Lord's supper. Now, I'm saying to you from the outset this morning, that mustn't happen today. In fact, you know what? It shouldn't happen today. Because in what I think is a a, a beautiful and a God-given coincidence, do you see what's happening today? Like we are celebrating communion at the very point where we reach the death of the Lord Jesus Christ in the sermon series of Mark's Gospel. Isn't that lovely? That is not me orchestrating things. This is no, I haven't planned this for a second, believe me. But we are coming together. We're coming to the Lord's table at the very point. We've been in this sermon series for years. And and at the very point we're celebrating communion, we find ourselves at Calvary. We find ourselves looking at these verses. So surely as we do that, surely as we study these events, that the Holy Spirit this morning will prepare us, ready us to come to the Lord's table and to do so with what Christ has done for his people firmly in our sight. So we're going to celebrate communion. Now, this morning in this portion of scripture from verse 33 to verse 39, I want us to notice a few elements here. The first thing that we need to pay attention to is the Father's activity at Calvary. The Father, not the Son yet, but the Father, God the Father's activity. That's the first thing that I want us to, to consider just now. Now, excuse me. <coughs> if you were here last week, you will remember what's gone on. Do you remember last week? We witnessed the mockery and the misery of Calvary. Are you here? Do you remember? We had seen the Lord Jesus Christ lifted to the cross and he has faced pain and he's faced the derision from all the people around him. Now, as soon as we get into this section this morning, do you see what happens? We are given or we are shown or told off a sign that accompanied the crucifixion. Do you see it in verse 33? We are told that for three full hours from noon. Now, friends. Boys and girls too, remember the word, alright, from, what was the word I said? From noon, remember it, from noon till 3pm, when the sun should have been, of course, at the highest point, the brightest point in the sky, what's the sign? What happens? Darkness engulfs the place of the skull. So there's darkness as we look at Calvary. Now, this is not, there have been a lot in the news in, in America about the eclipse, isn't there? This is not an eclipse. This is not a dust storm. This is a, a work in a God, isn't it? The darkness. Here's the question we've got to wrestle with. What does it mean? Like, just, like what, what, if there's darkness at the cross, what does it signify? What does it symbolize? Like, is it to show us the blindness of humanity at Calvary? Is that, is that what it is? Something like that? Actually... I don't think we need to speculate about what the darkness at Calvary means. Because I think scripture makes it abundantly clear what it means. You see, throughout the Old Testament, time and time again, darkness, and especially friends, darkness during the day, darkness in the Old Testament often symbolizes the judgment 
and the wrath of God. Judgment of God. Darkness. Judgment. Now, if, if we were having a Bible study uh, this morning, what we could do is we could look at all of the host, the plethora of examples in the Old Testament when darkness symbolizes judgment. We could go to Deuteronomy 28. We could go to Jeremiah 15. And you can do that later if you're so inclined to do that. I want us to go through all the examples of when darkness means judgment. Do you know what I want us to do? I just want us to focus on what we should be focused on, what should spring to mind, the two really obvious examples when darkness symbolizes judgment. And for the first of these, I just want to speak to the boys and the girls in the room. Now, boys and girls, Jesus dies in the portion of scripture that we're looking at, doesn't he? And Jesus dies at Passover time. Now, boys and girls, I'm not going to put you to the test. I'm not going to really give you questions to answer. But I just want you to nod if you can remember what I'm talking about. What happened at the first Passover? Let's see. The people of Israel were in slavery in Egypt. Really? Do we remember that? We get one or two nods of the head. That's good. We can build on that. And in Egypt, what did God do? God sent plagues. Didn't he? Amongst the Egyptians. Do you remember this, boys and girls, from Sunday school, from your mums and dads? Plagues of flies and frogs and so forth. Isn't that right now? Do we remember what the ninth plague was? God sent into Egypt, boys and girls, darkness. I mean, a darkness that could be felt. And what did it mean, the darkness? Psalm 22. We sang it a moment ago. A psalm. A prophecy, a psalm that speaks of the righteous one, a time where he will face and experience separation and abandoning by God. And it is there, friends, that I want you to linger for a moment. It is there that I want you to meditate. Because would you not agree with me that there is a problem, the problem in the church when it comes to Calvary? See, isn't it true that we are in danger of overlooking the anguish that Jesus experienced in Calvary Hill? Isn't that the danger? Isn't that the danger with us in the church, with us in our heart, overlooking the, the horror of Calvary for the Lord Jesus Christ? And maybe, friend, Christian friend, you understand why this happens. Over the years in our Christian experience, we've become so incredibly familiar with this sort of stuff, haven't we? This reading, aren't we familiar with it? The idea that Jesus has died on the cross for our sins. We've just sung about it. We've just read it. We've just prayed about it. We're so familiar. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Yada, yada, yada almost. Do you see? We begin to take it for granted. We begin to... This is just so familiar. We begin not to wrestle with the reality of what your Lord experienced in the cross. And I am saying, do you see what God is doing with us this morning? He's shining a spotlight on one solitary expression. Taking you by the hand, taking you to that expression. And what do you see? Such was the anguish for the Lord Jesus Christ, that at Calvary it was almost as though he could not call his God Father. Isn't that it? 
Like for the first recorded time in Mark's Gospel, he doesn't pray Abba at the cross. He doesn't call out Father. What does he pray? He prays, my God, my God. Doesn't that hint at the separation? And then you think of the forsakenness for Jesus. Now, dwell on it for a moment. He's just been abandoned by all of the disciples. And he's just a moment ago, he's faced the rejection of all of his people. And then he's just faced abuse from the occupiers of his land. And now, look at him, the moment of his death. And he faces now the rejection, the forsakenness, the dereliction of his own father. The, the one he loves so much. He's, the one he spent his whole life obeying. The point that he needs him so much. Where is the father? He seems a million, million, million miles away to our Lord. That though there was no schism at the Trinity, no schism in the Trinity at Calvary, it surely seems to have felt like that to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm saying to you as a congregation, as a church, as Christians, do we not need to recapture a sense of that anguish and horror? Yes, it's familiar. But do you see what this means? Do you see what we have? The darkness of judgment. It meant for your Lord a blackness of soul. So we see the Father's activity. We see the Son's anguish at Calvary. A third thing we see is the temple's access. The temple's access. Now, I, I spoke about this last week, the fact that we've, we've been in Mark for quite a while. And we've worked through this book. But is it not right now, at this very moment, that we come to the worst and most awful verse in this book? Let me just read it to you and you consider these words. This is verse 37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. At this point, as we look on at Calvary, our Lord's head hangs. He is dead. Now, at this point, we're told of another remarkable, remarkable thing that God gives to us. He gives to humanity, actually. gives to mankind. Because... At this very split second, now think of that, the very second, the last breath in our Lord's lungs has been exhaled, it's been expired, and at that very split second, did you notice what happens? We are told that a few steps away, the curtain in the temple, what's to it? It tears, a tear does not form, it tears from top to bottom. Now, again... If you're a Christian and if you've been in churches for a long time, you're nodding your head and you're saying to me, you're thinking, yep, I know that. You know, the, I'm, I'm familiar with this idea that the curtain tore in the temple. We were even doing this with, a, with our children this week in family worship. We do it. We know that the curtain tore, don't we? What I think we don't perhaps uh, appreciate is how complicated that matter is in Mark's gospel. Because, friends, there were two curtains in Herod's temple. And what does Mark not do? 
Mark does not tell us which veil tore. And surely it is important. I mean, if it happens at the very last moment of Jesus' life, surely it's important that we understand which which curtain, which veil, which barrier was it so? It could be the first and main curtain in the temple. Now this was the massive curtain that was visible from outside of the temple. Okay, now it, was, it separated the courtyard from, from what was called the court of Israel. Now boys and girls, you've got to do, you've got to work with me on this. You've got to think about and picture the biggest curtain you've ever thought of in your whole life. Okay, the biggest window, the biggest curtain. And then do you know what you've got to do? You've got to forget about that. Because this curtain was much bigger. This was a curtain, perhaps maybe the height of this room. And it was huge, massive, and it was thick, boys and girls. But friends, what's important to know is what Josephus, the historian, tells us. And he tells us that this massive curtain was embroidered with a heavenly picture on it. So a huge curtain with a picture of glory, a picture of heaven embroidered on it. And this is where it gets juicy, I think. Because if it is this first and main temple curtain that tears, the symmetry in the Gospel of Mark is absolutely wonderful. Because you know this book by now. What happened at the beginning of Mark's Gospel? What happens at Jesus' baptism? The heavens tear open to reveal what? That Jesus is the Son of God, right? That's at the start of this gospel. What happens at the end of the gospel here? That was Jesus' baptism. What happens at Jesus' death? The curtain with the heavens embroidered. The heavens, yes, they tear open to reveal to the Roman soldier at Calvary what? That Jesus is the Son of God. If it is this main curtain, this main veil in the temple that Mark has in view. It's marvellous, isn't it? That symmetry. <laughs> Here's the problem I've got with that. Hey, if you want to go with that temple curtain, I'm fine with that. We can, we can, we can agree. There's no great problem. But I doubt that that is what Mark has in view. You see, what you know, what I know is that there was another veil in the, in the temple, wasn't there? A curtain that separated the from the most holy place. And you've heard of this, haven't you? The cubicle, the boxed off area where Yahweh himself dwelt. And a place that no one was allowed to, to access. No one except the high priest. But once a year, on the day of atonement, through sacrifice. And it seems to me, based on the language in the book of Hebrews, that it is that veil to the most holy place that tears at the death of Jesus. And if so, do you see what God is declaring to humanity in the death of his son? He's not just declaring that the temple worship is dead. What is he declaring? He's declaring that now the way to God is made clear. There is a pathway to go through the death of Jesus. The atoning work of Jesus Christ is not just the high priest. It's anyone, anywhere 
through belief in the Lord Jesus Christ that can enter into the very presence of the Almighty. Anyone, anywhere, through the work of Jesus, who can't be reconciled and restored to this thrice holy God. And when we see it like that, don't we wonder, isn't it this sign such a beautiful thing? The curtain at the death of Jesus fell. It is destroyed. The Son of God died in separation to enable restoration with his Father. So we see activity from the Father. We see anguish from the Son. We see access in the temple. And then we end, we close with a fourth thing. And that is the centurion's announcement. Now again, if you were here last week, uh, you remember we looked at a host of a plethora of really negative uh, responses to Christ upon the cross. Boys and girls, again, you remember this. Who mocked and ridiculed Jesus last week? We had passers-by, did we? Who else did we have? Chief priests, and we had the Romans. A host of negative Horrendous responses to, to the Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross. Well, at long, long last, we see someone at Calvary who has a positive, a glorious, and uplifting response to Jesus as he hangs on the cross. And I, I want to close just by answering really brief questions that you might have about him. First of all, who's this man that has this reaction? Would you look at it with me? Look at verse 39. Who is this man that we're talking about? Verse 39. He is... What's, what does Mark say? What's the word? He's a centurion. Think about that. He's a centurion. Now we talk a lot in the life of the church about unlikely conversions, don't we? Sometimes we like to have testimony meetings, don't we, in the life of the church, where we'll get somebody up for an unlikely convert to Christianity and they'll tell us how they've been saved. What about the Apostle Paul? An unlikely convert, isn't he? Somebody who had previously persecuted the Christian church. What about the thief upon the cross? There's an unlikely person for the Holy Spirit to work amongst. Think about this man. What's that word that I'm saying to you? He was a centurion. Do you know what that means? He's not just a Roman guard. Do you understand that? He's not just a, a Roman soldier here at Golgotha. Who's this guy? Who's this man? He's the very one who was put in charge of putting Jesus to death. You see that? Not just one of a bunch of them. This man that we're dealing with here, who surely has a work of the Spirit done in his heart, he's the very chief executioner of the Lord of glory. Second question. Where was he? Have a look. We're told that he stood facing Jesus, and I draw your attention to that merely because it surely is the most evocative picture. Because do you see it now, Calvary? That darkness begins to lift through the light. What do you see? You see this Roman soldier, don't you? Perhaps now in blood. And what is he doing? He's standing just a few feet away from the cross. In fact, he is standing opposite the cross and he is now staring at the lifeless body. Of the Lord Jesus. 
Third question, what has he just seen? Now, this is interesting. I think a lot of the commentators, they say that what impressed the centurion, what changed, challenged this man, were the phenomena at the cross. Now, you see the idea, I hope. The man sees the darkness. He maybe looks over to the temple, sees the curtain, and he feels the earthquake at the time of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of these things, they they impress upon him, they shake him to his core, right? Now, that's fine, and that is the focus of Matthew's account. But I'm saying that's not what Mark tells you here. And have a look. What is it that impressed the soldier here? It is the manner in which Jesus breathed his last. And I'm asking you, do you see what that tells you, friend? It tells you that the Lord Jesus Christ died differently to others who had been crucified in the past. He died differently. I mean, the centurion, he would have seen countless hundreds of people crucified. But the Lord Jesus dies differently to them. The Lord Jesus Christ on the cross did not fade out. Do you understand that? He did not gradually succumb to exhaustion upon the cross. He, he, he did not just out of fatigue expire. Do you see? He died suddenly. What did we just read? There was a loud cry from the Lord Jesus Christ. And he breathed his last. Do you see what happened in Calvary Hill? What Jesus declared in John's gospel comes true. That he laid down his life of his own accord. You understand Jesus' death, an act of volition, an act of the will. And that centurion saw that. And it shook, it shook this hard, barbaric man to the foundation of his soul. And so the last question. What does he declare? Look at the words. Verse 39. He sees this death like none other. And he declares, truly this man was the son of God. That from the most unlikely of sources, we have the clearest declaration of Jesus' identity in the whole of the book. And you see the brackets again. Because how does Mark's gospel begin? account of Jesus of Nazareth, who the Son of God, and we wait, and we wait, and we wait, and we wait, and it is only here, in death, it is only in apparent defeat, that that is declared positively, here is the Son of God, you see the victory, friends, atonement here, now completed, and completed by the Son of Almighty God, himself. I end with the same question that I asked you last week. Look here at Calvary. Have you trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ? Friend, is that true for you? And you read of this stuff and your, your heart is moved, your affections are stirred, and you can say, that's my Savior. That is my God. Is it true that you love the Lord Jesus Christ? Is it true that you have looked to him, leant on him for the forgiveness, the cleansing of your sins? Is that true of you? If so, surely you're not going to let communion pass you by today. 
surely as we go at the table, that you will just now meditate upon these great events. Surely it is at the table that you will praise the name of God your Father for his mysterious and precious work of salvation. And surely at the table just now, you will thank Jesus, won't you, for enduring what I think we cannot and do not fully grasp and understand. We at London City Presbyterian Church, the saints here, let us go to the table and let us remember a death. A death like none other. A death for us. Let's pray.